You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I don't think managers are aware of what necessarily low-level analysts have to see as their part of their day job. It wasn't really what they were expecting or what their job description was. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some interesting stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns with an interview with a spam analyst. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump into our stories here. Why don't you start things off for us? Dave, last week I said I'm going to stay on the topic of non-fungible tokens or NFTs. Yeah. And this week I'm talking about rug pull scams. But I think this is it for NFTs for me. I'm not going to do another one on this. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) All right. And few. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So a rug pull is a type of exit scam. Mm. Uh, And it's Pretty easy to understand an exit scam, okay. right? We, we see these on the dark web all the time or hear about them. Uh, what an exit scam is, is let's say I, I want to be an escrow agent on the dark web. Okay. And I say, I'm going to hold your Bitcoin or your, your cryptocurrency until you receive what it is that you have ordered, uh, be it illicit or otherwise, from whomever you've ordered it from. Right. So the person, uh, the, the buyer sends me some Bitcoin. Let's say it's Bitcoin. Okay. And I hold it and I tell the seller, I have the Bitcoin and I'll send it to you as soon as you deliver the product to the buyer. So the seller sends the buyer the the product. The buyer says, I've received the product. And then I send the Bitcoin on minus a little bit for myself. So you're the trusted agent in the middle. I'm the trusted agent in the middle. I'm a middleman. Right. Okay. So I build a reputation for myself and and I, I'm starting to handle a lot of transactions, and it's all pretty pretty easy for me to do this. And it, all you need is a Bitcoin wallet and, and access to the dark web, and you can start doing this. Mm-hmm. But eventually, Dave, I'm like a bank. I'm holding tons of Bitcoin, mm. tons of it. Mm-hmm. So much, in fact, that it becomes a temptation for me just to take the money and run, and that's what I do. Ah. I'm killing the goose that lo- lays the golden eggs. But, you know, I think I'm, I'm getting as, uh, you know, as I – as I do this exit scam, I'm getting a lot of money. I can live the rest of my life comfortably without having to worry about anything. I see. Provided I can launder the money. Mm-hmm. So that's an exit scam. A rug pull scam is a little bit different, but fundamentally the same. Hmm. Okay. Uh, to understand what it is, I did a lot of searching and watched a lot of videos from Whiteboard Crypto, which is a channel on YouTube. Hmm. Uh, they have some really good explanations of things like liquidity pools and and uh, cryptocurrencies. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just going to tell you uh, kind of how this how this works in the world of Ethereum. Okay. Uh, first, it's important to understand that non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, exist on a blockchain. Mm-hmm. And many of them exist on the Ethereum blockchain. Hmm. Uh, that's because it's a feature of the Ethereum blockchain to have something called smart contracts. Mm. I'm going to talk about Ethereum for the rest of this segment, but you can do this on any blockchain that has uh, smart contracts, not just Ethereum. Mm. Uh, so you can't do it on Bitcoin, actually. Bitcoin doesn't have the capability to have smart contracts, so you can't put NFTs on on uh, on Bitcoin. Interesting. But smart contracts are just code. 
that dictate how the Ether, which is the actual cryptocurrency from the Ethereum blockchain, can be spent or used. And you can develop additional tokens on the Ethereum blockchain. Hmm. But because these contracts are code, they can do just about anything. And because these this code is written by humans, bad stuff can happen. Ah. Right? Uh, back in 2016, someone set up a wallet with a smart contract called a Distributed Autonomous Organization, or a DAO or DAO, hmm. right? Somebody found a vulnerability in the code, and this vulnerability just let them transfer their uh, all the Ethereum out of the wallet to themselves, and they did just that. $150 million worth of Ethereum was gone. Wow. Right? This is You can look this up. This is called the DAO, uh, DAO. Just Google that. Uh, DAO Ethereum, and you'll see the whole story about it and get a lot of, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but Mm -hmm. what it was, was a smart contract that had a defect. It's a smart contract. Didn't have the defect. In fact, that's the reason why we now have Ethereum and Ethereum classic because Ethereum classic, the, uh, the guy that did this still has all the Ethereum in modern Ethereum. He doesn't because they, they went back, fixed the bug and changed the, uh, and, and re-rolled out the blockchain from that point on. So it got forked at that point. It got forked. Exactly. Okay. But that's a whole story unto itself. So let's move on. Rug pulls are essentially the same thing, but the attack comes from the inside, Hmm. right? So let's say I want to do a rug pull scam, okay? right? Because I'm a person of ill repute, right? (laughs) So we all know. (laughs) So I start a wallet and write a smart contract. And now here's the social engineering part. Hmm. I set up a website and then I go to Reddit, Facebook, and Twitter. And I say, hey, everybody, I'm offering my own form of token called jokins. <laughs> jokins are great. Okay. Everybody should buy them. I mean, they're great, but they're no Bitner coins. Right. So. <laughs> coins. That's a good one. We should do this, Dave. Jokins and Bitner coins. Yeah. <laughs> My scam would actually be more elaborate than, hey, everybody, buy jokins, right? It would actually be like, this is a great serious investment. We're gonna, you're going to make millions. Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. All, we're all going to be rich. Um, <laughs> But then everybody puts their money into my wallet. They actually get jokins, right? Hmm. So they have some kind of representation of this. Uh, But once I have enough jokins, or once I've sold enough jokins for Ether, and I'm happy with the amount of Ether that's in my wallet, I take the money, I shut down all the social media accounts, and I disappear. And that's Hmm. a rug pull scam. Okay. Now, this happened earlier this month with something called Evolved Ape. Evolved Ape was a non-fungible token that had 10,000 apes, they called it. And mm. they were going to be used in in a game. I don't know how the game was supposed to work. I don't have any information about that. You could probably find it online. Mm. Uh, but it was started by this guy who called himself Evil Ape. No tip-off there. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so once good old Evil Ape, by the way, Evil Ape, his initials are EA. I'm wondering if that's some kind of poke at electronic arts. Oh, well, right? it could be. Could uh, be. Some kind of subtle poke. All right. Maybe, maybe I'm seeing patterns where there are none. But <laughs> he made off with $2.7 million. Wow. By doing a rug pull scam. Hmm. Now, okay. So, again, because all of this is taking place on a blockchain. Right. Uh, isn't the ultimate exit. So, so the, um, Mr. Ape. Right. Uh, isn't his ultimate exit traceable on the blockchain itself, or does he have to go through some sort of money laundering process to get that money out of there? Well, now he has Ether. 
Yeah. Right. So, uh, which he, is a blockchain, which is, which is on a blockchain, but he can exchange that ether on some exchange for, uh, for another cryptocurrency. And then it's not traceable anymore. Okay. Uh, or he could put that ether through a tumbler, which makes it more difficult to trace. It doesn't make it untraceable, but it makes it more difficult to trace. Hmm. Uh, there are lots of things you can do once you have, uh, once you have ether. This is unlike the story I was talking about last week where you have non-fungible tokens. Ether is fungible. Yeah. So, now you're now you're all you have to do is launder this money. He can probably get away with two million dollars here. I'm just thinking of the highly motivated mob of people who want to crowdsource the figuring out who this gentleman or lady is. <laughs> right. That, well, there <laughs> there's a bunch of them. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> they, right. They they were going to sell uh, ten thousand of these things. Maybe there's ten thousand people out there. Hmm. Wow. Probably less. But uh, so how do you protect yourself? First and foremost, this is my advice, not not anybody else's advice. But don't put any money into any non-fungible token that you just can't afford to just lose, mm-hmm. right? It's like going to the casino. Yeah, yeah. Don't take your rent money to the casino. There's a website out there called rugdoc.io, call themselves Rug Doctor. Hmm. I, I, I anticipate them getting a cease and desist letter from the people that uh, rent you the, the carpet cleaners. But <laughs> <laughs> in the meantime. But in the meantime, go to rugdoc.io. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one called Token Sniffer, which looks uh, looks up non-fungible tokens and and does uh, code reviews, automated code reviews on their smart contracts. Hmm. Uh, also, uh, things that you can do, look for hastily assembled web presences, mm. right? Because th- mm-hmm. these NFT scammers do that. They set these up very quickly. They want to they publicize it. They want to get the money and get out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there's other things you can do as well, but they involve a lot of technical stuff. If you don't understand what you're, what you're buying, don't buy it. Yeah. Right. If you don't understand what non-fungible tokens are, stay away. Any investment. It doesn't matter. If you don't understand what a stock is, don't don't invest in stocks. Mm-hmm. You really have to understand how the investment vehicle you're putting your money into works before you can uh, safely invest in it. <laughs> you know, if this whole Hopkins thing doesn't work out for you, Joe, maybe you have a future as a financial advisor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you can just sell jokins. <laughs> you can sell jokins. Yeah. Yeah. Although I'm telling you, I'm com- going to compete with you with my Bitner coins. <laughs> It's a good one. Yeah. I like Bitner coins. They're probably more valuable than Jokins. <laughs> they only come in sets of eight, so they're eight Bitner coins. Okay. Even better. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, interesting story for sure, and we will have links to uh, all of that stuff in the show notes. Um, so, Joe, my story this week. Now, before you click through and look at the the link that I provided in our show notes here, okay? I want you to close your eyes. Closing my eyes. And I want you to imagine the Verizon logo. Okay. Okay. So yep. Verizon, of course, major telecom company, one of the largest in the world. Big red V. Uh, what do you imagine the Verizon logo looks like? It's uh, uh, a big red V with a white horizon. Okay. Right? Maybe a black horizon. All right. Is there anything what, – what, what does it uh, look like in terms of text and logo elements? Uh well, the V is kind of like a check. Okay. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's see. The the letters are of a specific font that's very distinguished. Yeah. Like I'd recognize that font out of out of context with the word Verizon. Okay. There's a black background. Okay. Uh, so maybe the letters are white, or maybe it's a white background with the black letters. I think I've seen it both ways. Yeah, probably. Most most uh, logos are are. Uh, you know, they have different versions of it depending on where it's going and that sort of thing. It reminds me of an old local local company. That used to be called Vitro. Do you remember Vitro? I do not. No. Um, okay, but it 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 kind of does remind me of that. All right. 
So uh, I brought the uh, the logo up on my computer screen here. Open your eyes. Okay. Take a look. Oh, yes. I was wrong. The V is not the right <laughs> check. Okay. Okay. Is that actually the Verizon logo? That is actually the Verizon logo. Okay. Maybe I'm actually thinking of the old Vitro logo. Okay. So, but you have you have perfectly fallen into my trap, Joe. Okay. Because it is a perfect example of this story <laughs> from the folks at Inky. Uh, they have, uh, in their security blog, uh, they've published an article titled, Fishers Get Clever, Use Math Symbols for Verizon Logo. I see. So the actual Verizon logo, you go look it up, it's the word Verizon, as you say, it's in a very, uh, strong, recognizable, heavy font. Right. And at the end of the word, after the word Verizon, there's a red check mark. Right. And I think most of us, as you did in our mind's eye, somewhere we place that red check mark. Well, what Inky has found is that folks who are doing phishing attacks have made their own version of the Verizon logo. And as you described, they have replaced the first V in Verizon with a symbol. Sometimes they use the square root symbol. Uh, see, now that's exactly what the Vitro logo used to look like. <laughs> it, had a, it was a square root symbol okay. for the V and then Itro. Yeah, Sometimes they'll use just a red check mark, right? And and then the word Erizon okay. after it, right? So so substituting something for the V, but that is not the actual Verizon logo. The Verizon logo is the word Verizon with a red check mark, but in as you perfectly demonstrated, in our minds we we remember that red check mark, but it seems like we're a little mushy about exactly where it goes. Did it used to go in front? I Am I suffering so. a Nelson Mandela effect here? <laughs> I don't know, You're Joe. You're making me doubt my own existence, Dave. <laughs> well, yeah, worse things could happen. Right. So, um, so what these folks are doing by substituting that symbol for the V, that allows them to get through a lot of spam filters. Yeah. Right? Because they're looking for the word Verizon. Right. And that word is not in this in in these spam in these uh, phishing attempts. Right. They're using a symbol and the E. Yep. It so, gets right um, through. Gets right through, uh, and uh, folks fall for it. In this case, these are a bunch of um, email messages that tell you that you have a voicemail, and they say, please click through to get, you know, to, to listen to this new voicemail, and if you click through, uh, it takes you to a place that asks for your login credentials, mm -hmm. and then they got you. Right. It's, it's not actually Verizon. It's the scammers. They ha Now they have your Verizon credentials. And they do all sorts of things like going in and trying to purchase new phones right. in your name <laughs> right. under using your account credentials. I used Verizon for a time. So mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. I remember, and even with my current provider, you can uh, just get on your on their website, buy a phone, have it shipped to you, and they'll just bill you for it, right? right. Yeah. So, yeah, these guys are getting free phones. Yeah. And phones aren't cheap. No. <laughs> So, uh, just some things to be aware of here. Um, you know, look for uh, suspicious domain names. Look for domain names that look close to the original domain name but aren't the original domain name. Right. Uh, in a case like this, if something feels a little off, maybe it is. Yeah. But I think this is a really good example of how fuzzy our memory can be, especially when it comes to visual cues and logos. And so, it's very easy to fall for something like this. Yeah. Obviously, you have, uh, you know, my, my recollection of the logo being very much like what these guys are doing here. It's remarkable. Yeah. Um, I could have sworn that check was at the front of the <laughs> logo. <laughs> right, right. 
<laughs> so, so, dear listeners, Joe is going to spend the rest of the day questioning himself, right. wondering <laughs> what else does, what else does he believe in that isn't so. Right. <laughs> All right. So again, that's from uh, the folks over at Inky, and uh, we'll have a link to their blog post over in the show notes. All right, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes all the way from Spain Hmm. via Raphael the Elder, who has a son, Raphael the Younger. (laughs) who was the target of a Steam account takeover scam on Discord. This is our second Discord uh, catch of the day. Mm. We're seeing uh, an uptick in Discord scams. Dave, you can read the part of the scammers, and I will play the part of young Rafa. You will have to do two voices here. Mm. Okay, I can handle that. Okay, go ahead. I knew you could. Here we go. All right. Hello, mate. This is your Steam account, right? And then he sends a link. And young Rafa says, yeah, why? Sorry for bothering you, mate. Hope you don't get mad and I'm worried because I have mistaken your account because I reported it to the support team for scamming me instead of someone who impersonated your profile. And that impersonator is a scammer who scammed me. (laughs) Don't worry. I hope they don't ban me. Someone impersonated your Steam account and he scammed me $200 in TF2. And I thought that was you. That's why I accidentally reported you on Steam support. And I'm worried about your account right now. Because if this report can get removed on your profile and get processed, they will ban you now. I'm very sorry about what happened. But, mate, the main reason why I am here is that the support team wants you to confirm to him that you are not involved in my mistake report. So they will cancel my report and remove your account from ban. Okay. Okay. Anything I have to do? Anyways, I need to show you something. Can you read the ticket? It indicates that you need to add him and explain your side. You need to add this Steam admin via Steam and on Discord. Just add him and tell him that the report is just a mistake. And he includes a picture of the, uh, the Steam ticket, which can be very intimidating. So what happens next is young Rafa reaches out to this guy on Discord going by Eric Robson. Mm-hmm. Obviously another scammer. Could very well be the same guy. Mm. But young Rafa says... Hey. Hello, Steam user. I'm an official from Steam Community Support, and I'm here to help and supervise you, and we'll be providing assistance with regards to your issue. How may I help you? A guy told me that he false reported my account, thinking that I was a scammer. Good day to you. Please give me the full details about this accident, like a screenshot of the conversation between that user who warned you so that I can look into this issue. The report was a mistake. Okay, here's a screenshot. Kindly hold on a minute while I am reviewing the report filed on your Steam account. Okay. Are you willing to make an appeal to clear these reports? Um, sure. I had a VAC ban a long time ago, but nothing more. I don't know what a VAC ban is. Do you know what a VAC ban is? Do not. Okay. Have you added a phone number on your Steam account? If not, kindly add it to your Steam and tell me when you are done. Okay, wait. How can I add? Oh, wait, I saw it. Go to your account details and find Manage Phone Number. Tell me when you are done. Done. Kindly log out your Steam account from your computer because I will be connecting it to the database. Please tell me when you are done. Done. All right. I need the confirmation code sent to the phone number ending with 74 to close this report on your Steam account. Nope. Thanks, scammer. It literally says to change the password, enter this code. Ah, I see. <laughs> and that's when the scammer blocks him and no more can be done here. All right, so what's going on here? So w- what's happening here is that uh, young Rafa did not have multi-factor authentication enabled on his account, which he should have had 
already. Mm. Um, but uh, so they they have him enable that, and then they have him log out of his account, and then they go to his account and use the "I forgot my password" workflow, uh, trying to get him to uh, send the code. Because once you say "I forgot my password," and Steam says, "Okay, fine, we'll send you a code so you can reset your password." But Steam has gone ahead and with that code they're sending him somehow, uh, probably through an SMS message, yeah. they've said, this code will let you reset your password. I see. Right? So he knows what's going on at this point in time. I see. All right. Well, good for him yeah. for not falling for he it. He did not fall for it. But word to the wise, this is how they go about doing that. That's right. Yeah. The first person or the first contact, it could could be the same person, yeah. will, will say, hey, I accidentally... Uh, reported your account, get in touch with this person over at Steam Support, and that person is not from Steam Support. Right. It's another scammer. could be the same guy. And that person then goes through the process of trying to steal your account. Yeah, and they're using the pressure or the, um, I guess, the specter of you losing your account right. as the pressure to get you to act right now. Absolutely. Yeah. The artificial time constraint. All right. Well, that's a good one. And uh, thanks to our listener for sending that in. We would love to hear from you. You can send us uh, candidates for Catch of the Day. You can mail it to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, it's always a treat when Carol Terrio returns to the show, and uh, this week is no exception. Uh, she has a fascinating uh, and, dare I say, harrowing tale mm-hmm. of uh, an interview with a gentleman who uh, worked professionally as a spam analyst. Here's Carol Terrio. So recently we've been reading about Apple introducing a new way of vetting content to ensure that it's all above board. And there are people that are on side and there are people that are off side. But what about all these humans that have to look at this sensitive, unpleasant content? And it made me think of a friend of mine that we're going to call Paul. Now, Paul is someone I worked with 20 plus years ago. And as part of his job, he had to look at sensitive material as part of a spam vetting service. And I wanted to know what impact it had on him. Paul, your job was to look at dangerous spam images, um, sometimes containing things like sexual abuse images and the like. And I wanted to know what it was like for you to have to do that. So some of the um, emails that I I had looked at in the past uh, were had to be reported to the Internet Watch Foundation. Uh, because they were of a um, child uh, abuse nature. Did you have any training to how to deal? No, we didn't have any training at the time. And I specifically pushed to get some kind of help um, from the company. Because I don't think, I don't think managers are aware of what necessarily Low-level analysts have to see as their part of their day job, really, mm-hmm. what, um, and necessarily what their duty of care should be on them. So, I was quite senior at the time when I was doing this, but there were a few people who were junior who had to look at this as well, and it wasn't quite 
it wasn't really what they were expecting or what their job description was. So do you think do you think it would be wise for companies that have to start doing this? So these are people that are working at social media companies, at security companies, maybe even vetting, uh, working in an IT situation where they have to vet images. And I'm trying to figure out a way to like prepare them for the job ahead. Do you think that managers should have to sit through a day or two of doing it just so they can understand the impact and can be more sensitive to the requirements of their staff? I think it's always a good idea if a manager knows what their employees are doing. They don't have to understand it, but uh, they should know. So it is good. But in my job, it wasn't something that I had to deal with 24-7. Yeah. So I didn't go into a shift knowing that the next eight hours of my day would be looking at this. So there's a difference then between making people aware that could happen uh, because it's the internet and everything lives on the internet. And for people whose job it is to vet this type of thing eight hours a day, those are two different things. And I think I wouldn't have been able to do eight hours a day for any length of time. Yeah. So what, what advice do you have? So there's going to be companies out there that are going to be putting this in place because of either regulation or because of demand from the users. Do you have any advice for them on how they can approach this? So I was doing a lot of this at the beginning of, the, of this century. So it was a while ago. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was in an office. And I think it should be in an office because people now working from home, work-life balance, it's, it, it's, it's a lot easier to turn off a computer at an office and go home and turn off than it is from your bedroom, from your dining room, and also just third parties. So one of the things when I was working on this we were in a secure area. People couldn't walk past you. People couldn't see what was on your screen. Mm. You weren't facing glass doors because anything could happen and there was no reason for the cleaner or the salesperson who's trying to get coffee to be subjected to what you're subjected to. That's a really good point. But then again, there's no reason for you to be subjected to it, but sometimes it happens. Mm-hmm. You're saying, let's make sure that those people that have not signed up for this don't get a glimpse of it in any way. Yeah, because there should be procedures for you to talk to. One thing I knew is that I was reporting this and I talked to the people told me what, uh, in the Internet Watch Foundation and they told me what they did. So I knew I was doing good, but somebody coming into this, they wouldn't necessarily know that. And it's a hard justification. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to your comment about remote working. That is an excellent point that never even occurred to me. This is not something that anybody wants at home, even you know whether or not they have an official work computer to do it from and a special VPN to tunnel in. You don't want it in your house. No, because there were other people in your house, potentially. Yeah. At the time, I was in a relationship and I had good friends. 
So I wouldn't necessarily discuss the things that I had with my partners and friends. But if I couldn't talk about them in general, you you could get into a rabbit hole that would be even worse for you because people get inured to the images and then bad things can happen. Yeah. It must be very isolating doing this job because this is not dinner party uh, conversation. Um, and if you don't have a support system in a community within the uh, in work environment, you're kind of isolated in a bad way. Yeah. You need a support system within work. Yep. And you need you need a sufficient support system out of work as well. Um, yeah. And, and, and that might mean that people in HR recruiting for these jobs should look further to make sure that the people doing it are better able to handle this because you need a psychological strength to deal with this. You need, and even the strongest people probably couldn't do it for long periods of time. Yep. And training as well. And training. But, but, but as I said, if you know it's going to, if you know eventually some good will happen, it's a lot easier. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much for talking to me about this today. I know it's not easy, but I think it has been really important to hear from someone who's had to deal with it as a job and how well, the impact it had. So thank you so much. That's okay. All right, Joe, what do you think? That was a tough one to listen to. Yeah. Um, this is something I never, never want to do. When... 20 years ago, before my tech career, more than 20 years ago, mm -hmm. I had a night job where I worked at Best Buy. Mm. And there was a guy in the, uh, he may have worked for Geek Squad or, or in the same kind of thing as Geek Squad if, back then. I don't know if it was actually Geek Squad. Mm -hmm. But he was, uh, he was an enlisted guy in the Air Force. And at night, he would work at Best Buy just like I did. We both had day jobs. Right. But I could tell, sometimes he had to do this kind of forensic analysis. Uh, and I could tell when he had to do a forensic analysis, he didn't like that day because he was angry. Hmm. Um, and I, I've talked to people who work in the forensic field when they're doing uh, court cases for CSAM imagery. And in law enforcement, there are people that have to do this. Yeah. Uh, and, and these people have to see some kind of mental health professional as a part of their job every six months. Hmm. Right. Frankly, I don't think that's often enough. I think that needs to be continuous. Yeah. Uh, because this does have an impact on the people viewing it. Yeah. When Paul is talking about working remotely, this is absolutely something I would not want in my house. Mm. I would not, uh, I'd quit my job before that. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that needs to be done by whoever's doing it in an office space. And Paul makes some great points here about not having that inadvertently exposed to anybody else, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. Making sure that, that they don't see it. There are, however, automated solutions for this. Uh, there's a company called NetClean. Hmm. They're out of Sweden. Uh, they do that. But I was talking to some of the folks from NetClean about 10 years ago. And this was at, at the time. I don't know if the, the state has changed. But they said they couldn't sell a lot in the United States hmm. because U.S. law makes the person criminally liable when they know that there's this kind of imagery on a computer system and mm -hmm. they don't report it to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So – Companies would say, well, if we don't know, we don't have to report it. Oh, I see. Right. So sort of a catch-22 in a way. Right. Yeah. So they don't want to know. They don't want to know. Yeah. Exactly. Now, mm. I don't know what's changed in the past 10 years. But if you think about that from the company's perspective, at the time, 
there had been cases where uh, uh, an employee was doing something illicit mm-hmm. and the the law enforcement shows up and just seizes all of the company's computers. Right. Right. I don't know if that practice has changed. It, I would hope that it has uh, because that shuts a company down. Yeah. Now. You're done. Right. Uh, and a company can't survive that. And all these, all these people now are unemployed. Uh, it's, it's a terrible situation. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the point that it, as a, as someone running a company, you have to have some things in place to, uh, have a, a look into the types of things that your employees are doing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to protect yourself. Yeah. Pe- people who do this do need some kind of support system. Um, I, I've, I've seen this secondhand, uh, and it, it, it's, it's tough. It's something that's hard to, hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just can't imagine, um, as you say, the mental toll, the, right. the coarsening that it would, uh, that it would do. I'm, I'm glad it's one of those things. I, I understand there are folks out there who have to do this and it's something that needs to be done and it's important work, but I'm glad it's not me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Carol Terrio again for uh, bringing us that story. We do appreciate it. We want to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.